Well, hey, everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Before I um, <clears throat> go any farther, I need to just acknowledge something. I had a wicked cold this week. You guys had these? Anybody with me on this? And so my voice sounds um, like raspy or, or maybe more like Delilah. I don't know. But it's just, it's not normal today. It's not you. It's, it's me. But we're going to be all right. Um, and before we get to the teaching this morning, I actually want to take a moment to thank you um, and here's why. Uh, Sarah Ann and I have now been a part of Keystone for over 10 years. Isn't that amazing? And Yes, and thank you. And I can honestly say that during that time, I have never had to sit through a church meeting with like other staff or church leaders trying to figure out how to make ends meet, even during the pandemic. And I'm telling you, that is such a gift uh, and here's why. It allows Randy and I and the rest of our lovable staff to keep our focus on our mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. Um, and it also helps us remain emotionally present with people instead of quietly wondering how our families will continue to eat and live indoors. You know what I'm saying? So, um, and of course, the reason for that wonderful reality is a whole bunch of you that have committed to faithfully supporting the work of your church. And, and as a pastor, I just got to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, your investment really is making a difference in our community here and with our partners, both local, locally and globally. Um, and, and that said, as 2023 comes to a close, I wanted to ask each of you who hasn't yet sort of crossed that line to become a financial partner with your church to consider making a special year-end gift to sort of set us up well going into 2024. And as many of you know, if you've been around here, about 30% of our annual giving comes in between Thanksgiving and New Year's Day. And uh, it, again, a healthy year-end really helps us start the new year in a strong place. And so all that to say, if you haven't yet, would you have a conversation with whoever you do life with this week about what you might do to help your church as we move into 2024? And of course, super easy to give around here. Um, I, there's a bunch of different ways. I actually don't know what they are, but you know what they are. And if you don't know, Randy knows. So there you go, because I don't really do the giving thing very much. So anyway, thanks for considering. And um, as we say a lot around here, we, we couldn't do it without you, and we mean it. And so uh, so now that said, awkwardly shifting gears, uh, we are in the second week of our series, Why Christmas? Um, and it's all about why God sent Jesus on that first Christmas. And as we said last week, all of the whys that we're going to unpack during this series actually have to do with the love that God has for people like you and me. I, I mean, it's true, Christmas is about Jesus, and like all those, you know, seasonally appropriate throw pillows proclaim, Jesus is the reason for the season. Like, if there were no Christmas, there were obviously no Jesus, there wouldn't be a Christmas. But if you think about it, so are we. I mean, if we weren't so desperately in need of being rescued from our sin, then there wouldn't have needed to be a Christmas. And so I, I think it's more than fair to say from heaven's perspective, you are the reason for the season. And, and so am I. Now, just in case you weren't with us last week, I want to just take a minute and catch you up. And last week, we sort of chased down the answer to the uh, first answer to the question of why Christmas. And the answer we explored last week went like this. Uh, why Christmas? Well, Christmas is God's way of confirming his presence in our lives. 
Uh, and we also talked about how Christmas is God's way of affirming for all time that even though we all eventually experience seasons when he's silent in our lives, his silence is not a confirmation of his absence. Like the story of Christmas affirms that whatever our situation, he is still watching and he is still listening. And in spite of what we may feel on any given day, we can trust that he is still with us and for us until the time comes for his plan for our lives to enter the next chapter. And so that was our first why of Christmas. It's his way of confirming his presence in our lives. And with the rest of our time together today, we get to chase down another why. And to get us going in that direction, I actually get to ask you a really fun question. It goes like this. Do you ever get the sense that something is missing? In other words, as you live your life and you do all the things that you need to do each day, do you ever notice situations that just don't seem right? And if you're anything like me, this happens all the time. Um, just a couple of hypothetical examples. Just imagine with me, you're at Starbucks enjoying a peppermint mocha with a good friend who once again is sharing about how profoundly complicated her relationship with her sister has become. And she describes for you all the times that she's been hurt by things that her sister did and the things that the sister said and some things that the sister didn't do and some things that the sister didn't say. And as you're listening, you're trying to be empathic, you have this overwhelming sense that you've heard all of this before. Last year at Starbucks over a peppermint mocha. And so as she's sort of talking and sharing her heart, you just can't help but to think about how much better her life would be if she could somehow forgive her sister and move on. But it's almost like she's stuck. If there's a way forward, she can't see it. It's almost like she's missing something, something really important, something really powerful. Or maybe another example, like imagine with me, you're at Applebee's for dinner. Because, you know, you got one of those good coupons in the mail, like three things for 10 bucks. And you're like, who doesn't need three things for 10 bucks, right? Yeah. And as you're kind of led to your table and you sit down, you notice that the family in the booth next to you, well, they're in the midst of a heated disagreement that you can't help but listen to because they're so loud. And after a few minutes, you realize, even though you dropped in on the middle of this thing, they're really upset about something that isn't really worth being upset about. And, and if you're being honest, well, everything in you kind of wants to inject yourself into the conversation as a referee and say, guys, 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 you've lost perspective. Things can't possibly be this complicated. Now, you don't inject yourself into the situation because you're in West Michigan and we don't do that sort of thing, right? I mean, this is not the East Coast. That's where they do on the East Coast. But still, still, right? In moments like that, you still want to intervene because it's almost like you see something that they don't see, or maybe they can't see. It's almost like they're missing something, it's something important, something really powerful. There's one more example. Perhaps you're uh, with your parents over Thanksgiving, and uh, once again, uh, you're forced to watch them interact with one another, and as you do, it's not pretty, over and over again, they sort of say things to each other that are just unkind, inconsiderate. And, and you find yourself thinking, you know, can't you two just cut each other a little slack? Why does it always have to be so difficult? Why can't you just be nice? And as you're watching them and you're like, you've known them your whole life, you're like, they're missing something. 
something really important, something really powerful. Something's missing. Well, as it turns out, the reason that you and I occasionally have a sense that something is missing in scenarios like this is because something is missing in scenarios like this. And in fact, that something is today's answer to the question of why Christmas. As it turns out, that first Christmas was God sending us that something that we so often miss and so desperately need. And it's a something that actually has the potential to heal broken relationships. Broken relationships between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and even, dare I say it, people and their mother-in-laws. Yeah. I mean, as you'll soon see, when Jesus walked the earth, this something poured out of him so often that it simultaneously threatened the people who didn't think they needed it and attracted the people who saw it as their only hope. In fact, the people who said, we don't need it, were the same people who had Jesus crucified. And the other group, well, they were the ones who followed Jesus. I'm telling you, this something may be missing in your marriage. It may be missing in your family. It's all too often missing in our world. But, but the stunning reality is on that first Christmas, God saw what we needed most and gave it to us in his son Jesus. And with the rest of our time, I want to kind of unpack that with you. Um, and I'll start this way. Yeah, though you may have never noticed it, of the four accounts of Jesus' life that were included in the New Testament of the Bible, they are, of course, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Uh, John's account differs dramatically from the other three in how it begins. I mean, the accounts written by Matthew and Luke record the details of the story of Christmas for us. So if you ever hear, a, you know, when we talk about Christmas Eve, that's from Matthew and Luke. And Mark's account actually begins after Jesus has already grown up. But, but, but John... He began his account by revealing sort of the big idea or thesis statement that drives his entire narrative. He wanted his readers to understand the significance of what happened on that first Christmas, cosmically speaking. Because to be honest, it was something that nobody was expecting. And so John began his account with words that echo the first words in the Old Testament. Here's what John wrote. He said, in the beginning was the Word. He said, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word was with God in the beginning. He goes on, through the Word, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And then a few verses later, he writes this, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In other words, John began his account of the life of Jesus by proclaiming that Jesus wasn't simply another teacher or prophet. He was literally the creator of the universe in a human body. And, and the first people to hear John's words here, I'm telling you, they knew that John had known Jesus, had been one of the first disciples of Jesus. And so they would have wanted to ask John, well, John, what was he like? And let's be honest, that's a great question. Because, you know, for the Jewish readers of John's gospel, I mean, they would say, well, this is the same God who gave the children of Israel the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai the day he descended in thunder and clouds and wind. This is the same God who parted the Red Sea and sent fire from heaven during the epic confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 
So John's readers would have wanted to know, like, what was it like to walk and talk with God in human form? What was he like? And as John continued to write, he actually answered that question. And he summarized the answer this way. He wrote, we have seen his glory, like me and the guys, we were with him. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And here it is. What's it like to walk with God in a human body? He was full of grace and truth. And it's easy for us to miss, but the statement full of grace and truth would have absolutely shocked John's original audience. Because if Jesus really was God in a human body, then they would not have expected him to be described as being full of grace and truth. Like all ancient peoples and people who participated in ancient religions, they would have expected him to be described as being full of justice and truth. The gods, what are they like? Well, they give you rules and then they zap you if you don't follow the rules. That's what the gods are like. But this idea of grace and truth, I mean, it would have been disruptive and shocking. And if they'd asked John to clarify, I'm pretty sure he would have understood their concern. He would have said, you know, yeah, prior to meeting Jesus, I expected God in a body to be full of justice and truth as well. And he would have said, you know, yeah, when, when God came down in the pers person of Jesus, he upended our expectations. He wasn't really anything like we thought he would be because he like overflowed with grace and truth. You couldn't miss it. And to be honest, that took us by surprise. Now check out what John wrote next. This is just, he kind of doubles down. He says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. In other words, John wrote, you got to understand, every time Jesus turned around, he demonstrated grace upon grace upon grace. And if we asked him what he meant, like, why do you say that, John? I think he'd say something like, you know, you know, like, I, I'm a Jew, and it's in the first century, and you know how we Jews hated Roman tax collectors? Like, couldn't stand them. They were traitors. They were our Jewish brothers who'd gone to work for the enemy to tax us and build fortune for themselves. We hated them. Well, one day after I started to follow Jesus, we're walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus looks at this tax collector in a booth and invites him to follow him, which means he was going to be a part of our group. His name was Matthew. And none of us could figure out what Jesus was doing. But as we started to real recognize the pattern, it was grace. He hadn't gone too far. He hadn't done too much. Jesus wanted him to become his disciple. He says, and you know, um, you know how Moses taught the Jewish people to stone people who were caught in adultery. That's like one of the rules in the Old Testament. Well, uh, John would say, I was with Jesus that morning on the Temple Mount when there was a woman who was brought before him by the religious leaders who'd been caught in the act of adultery. And we had a lot of questions on how they caught them in the act of adultery, but whatever, right? Kind of dropped her in front of us and said, what should be done to her, Jesus? And it was a fascinating moment. Because though the law of Moses said that she should be stoned, Jesus looked at the woman and said, I do not condemn you. And then he said, go and sin no more. And there it was, grace and truth. And then there was a day that Jesus was teaching us about prayer. And he says, you know, I don't just want you to pray for the people that you love. I want you to pray for the people you hate, for your enemies. I want you to pray that God would bless your enemies. And John says, you know, in hindsight, he did that because that's what grace does. That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. And then a few days after that, Jesus said, if somebody wants something from you, just give it to them. 
Actually give them more than they even ask for. Especially if they don't deserve it. Because that's what grace does. And I think John would say, you know, Jesus even showed grace on the day that he died on the cross. I mean, here he is hanging with two other guys in excruciating pain. And nonetheless, he turns to a man on his side, a convicted criminal. And he says, today, you will be with me in paradise. Just when we heard about that, we just, we just shook our heads because there it was again. Grace upon grace upon grace. It was shocking. It was disruptive. It was hopeful. And it was wonderful. But again, it, it, it wasn't what we were expecting. And I love that this is how John begins the, his account of the life of Jesus. Because it's almost like he says, listen, before you read the rest of what Jesus said and did, you've got to understand Jesus was different. Jesus is different. He isn't the God you thought you knew. And he isn't the God that you expected. Nonetheless, he was God as God chose to reveal himself to us in a human body. And I find it fascinating as John continues to write here, he draws a contrast between what was in the Jewish tradition and what is in Jesus. And he said it this way. He wrote, for the law, speaking of the Old Testament law, was given through Moses. And then he says this, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we know many of the people who first saw John's gospel would have been Jewish religious people. And uh, Jewish religious people, like all religious people, tend to really like laws and rules. You probably have friends like this, right? Um, and they like them because laws are clear and they're cause and effect. Allah says, if you do this, then God will do that. And if you don't do this, then God won't do that. But see, John wrote that when God came down in the person of Jesus, grace came down. In fact, grace and truth were realized and reconciled and embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we'd asked John, I think he would have said, listen, Jesus took grace and truth and married them. Like we had always seen them as incompatible, but in Jesus, something amazing happened. The incompatible somehow became perfectly compatible. And I think John would go on to say, you know what? I'm so glad they did specifically because of some of the things that we heard Jesus teach. Like I'm telling you, if you thought you were a sinner based on what the law of Moses said, then you really didn't want to hang out with Jesus. I mean, he over and over again took the standard of righteousness or rightness with God and he raised it to impossible heights. He said, I think my favorite example was one day Jesus was teaching and literally said to a group of Jewish people, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, like Moses told you, you shall not murder. Ten commandment, perfect. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And they're thinking, yep, Jesus, true, and that's why I've never murdered anybody. Me and God are good. But he's not done. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You haven't murdered anybody. Fantastic. You want peace with God? You better make sure you're never angry with anybody. And then, as if that weren't enough, during the same teaching, Jesus went on to say this. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, another one of the Ten Commandments. But, he says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And, 
I think John would say to us, man, I remember that day, a whole bunch of Jewish guys all looking at their feet. It was really weird. You know what I mean? Because, like, we hadn't committed adultery, but, I mean, Jesus, if you're saying this puts us sideways with God, I don't even think we understand how bad we are. And Jesus would say, that is my point. John would tell us, Jesus was absolutely unrelent, relentless in his proclamation of truth. He raised the moral standard far above the laws of Moses. And once he had established that we all deserve judgment because of our sin, he offered us grace. After he established that none of us were worthy of a relationship with God and couldn't make ourselves worthy by following rules, he promised to make us worthy. He affirmed that we owed God a debt that was immeasurably more than we could even imagine, let alone pay, and then promised to pay off our debt for us. I think John would tell us it was unbelievable and yet undeniable. Through Moses, truth was revealed through the law, but through Jesus, we simultaneously encountered grace and truth. And here's what's so interesting to me. That's not even the best part. Check out what John said next. He wrote, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. In other words, John wrote that by the end of Jesus' life, he and the other disciples figured out that grace and truth that Jesus wed so perfectly, well, they weren't simply a reflection of Jesus' values. They were a reflection of God's values because you see, Jesus wasn't just a man who had come from God. He had come as God to reveal God to us. To reveal that God is a God who has gone beyond the law in order to bring together grace and truth. Said a bit more personally, God is a God who sees you exactly for who you are and who knows exactly what you've done. And yet he says, in light of all of that, I'm going to give you exactly what you don't deserve. Because I am a God who overflows with amazing grace. I want you to accept the gift of a restored relationship with me through the blood of my son. And here's the amazing thing. After that happens, I want to adopt you as one of my children. And, and, then, and then I want you to actually become a person of grace in this world. A person who offers the same grace that you have received to other people. Other broken people. Other undeserving people. Like I'm telling you, at that first Christmas, God sent us that something that is so often missing in our relationships. He sent us grace. In a way that we couldn't miss. Grace is the ability to look at someone and say, I know what's happened. I know what you've done. I know you've ripped me off. But I'm not going to continue to give you what you deserve. I'm going to do for you what my heavenly father has done for me. I'm going to give you exactly what you don't deserve. And I'm telling you, at Christmas, God gave us what we deserved the least and needed the most. Which brings me to the second answer to the question. Why Christmas? I'll phrase it like this. Christmas is God's way of introducing us to his amazing grace. Christmas is God's way of introducing us to his amazing grace. And, and before I let you go, um, 
I want you to wrestle with two questions as we move towards Christmas, especially given that that this is in a season where we often find ourselves in historically rich relationships that can be challenging, Um, at least for my friends. Maybe I'm the epicenter of the problem. I don't know. Maybe that's not you. But anyway, yeah. So the first question I want you to wrestle down goes like this. Is it difficult for you to imagine a graceful God? And, And for some of you, this is hard. I mean, a God who sees you for all you've done, And how about this? Already knows what you will do and nonetheless says, I'll give you what you don't deserve. I mean, if that's hard for you to imagine, drill down a bit and ask yourself why. There's probably something in your past that you say, you know what? That was over the line. I know God forgives. I know he's gracious, but that was too far. And if you have that thought, I'm telling you, that was not Jesus' message. There is no sin that can outrun grace. And so, is it difficult for you to imagine a graceful God and why? And if you can identify why, you've also identified an area in your life where God wants to specifically rescue you. Because I'm telling you, until you really embrace God for who he is, you can't really build a healthy relationship with him. Matter of fact, I ran into a guy last night, um, and I was just out and about, and it was really weird because, like, he saw me, and I saw him, and I was trying to figure out, do I know you? And he looked at me, and he's like, oh, my gosh, you're here. And I thought, yeah, I live here in my whole life, going places. I don't know. Why are we doing this, you know? And I'm like, did we meet, like, at the Feynman Bar Mitzvah? Has it been? I don't know. What, what are we doing here? And anyway, he says, oh, man, my wife and I, you know, we've been back in town for, like, six months. But you need to know, like, for the four years prior, like, we moved away, and life was really hard, and we listened every single week to your, pod, your video podcast thing. I'm really high tech. You know what I'm talking about? The thing online. Every week, we learned so much. And he goes, and here's the thing. I, he goes, It was different than what I grew up with. I grew up in this super conservative church. It was all about the rules, and I always felt like such a loser. And then I listened to you, and you first you made me laugh, and then I got grace. I understood grace for the first time in my life because I just got to say thank you. I'm like, oh, man, that's so exciting. How great to have you actually in the room. And he looked at me, and he goes, actually, we landed at another church. (laughs) I I just thought, this is, that's perfect. I love it, right? (laughs) Anyway, grace can be hard to believe. It really does seem too good to be true, but I'm telling you, according to Jesus, it is true. So that's, that's question number one. Is it difficult for you to imagine a graceful God? Now, the second question goes like this. To whom do you most struggle to show grace? Like, who comes to mind? In which of your relationships is it most difficult for you to even consider extending grace. And, and I don't necessarily mean forgiveness. I mean, you may have forgiven this person, but you still struggle to show them unmerited favor. So who is it for you? And then the kind of the tag-along question to this one is sort of why? Like, why is that person in particular so challenging for you? When you figure out who and why, um, here's where this is so interesting you've actually identified an area where God wants to do a work of grace through you. He wants you to see the power and the potential of activating that missing something in your life. He wants you to see the power of his amazing grace in action, not just for you, but again, through you. And he knows something else too. When when you start living like that, when you start allowing his grace to flow through you, you actually become more like Jesus. Because he 
like his father, demonstrated amazing grace and truth. And we're going to pick it up there next week. But for now, um, if you're in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. Actually, before I pray, um, if, if, something, if something today especially um, activated just a need to have a conversation or a prayer, we'd love to meet you with some friends that will be under the screen to the left after I dismiss us. But uh, for the rest of us, let me close our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the grace in which we stand. We thank you for the hope of a life after this life because of the blood of Jesus and because of your grace. But we also thank you for the hope that your grace brings us in the midst of this life. As we navigate complicated relationships with broken people, I pray that we might reflect your heart. We might show unmerited favor, not because they deserve it, but simply because we have stepped out of the relational economy of this world and are trying to live in the new relational economy that you have established. I pray that as we gather with family and friends, your light would shine through our lives and that people who are searching and hurting might catch a glimpse of hope because of the work you're doing in us and through us. For today, I pray for a blessing on all my friends. I pray that your grace and your peace would rest on us. And we thank you for Jesus our Savior, our King. It is in his name that we pray and everyone said, amen. amen. We'll see you next week, friends.